the old pilot's plane tales. Flying the Red Flag, Part 2. In the first part of the Red Flag Tales, we talked about the reasons for the formation of the United States Air Force Fighter Weapons School and the subsequent creation of Exercise Red Flag. Now we get a chance to hear from some of the participants. Firstly, there is Nige, a long-in-the-tooth RAF nuclear attack Jaguar pilot who qualified as both a flying instructor on Hawks and subsequently as a weapons instructor, the RAF's equivalent of a fighter school graduate. So I can answer some of the simple questions, but the, the big caveat is, mate, I can't remember, because the date in my logbook of my last trip at Red Flag was uh, January the 27th, 1981. Then there is Gasha, who I thought was actually another Jaguar pilot. So uh, Bruggen 31 on the Jag, yeah? No, Tornado. Oh, Tornado, okay. Oh, cool. The so which version? So that was a GR1 in those days. Oh, right, okay. Super. Who, as you can hear, actually flew tornadoes in Germany and who has some of the funniest stories you'd ever want to hear. Jack was the USAF exchange pilot with me in Australia on the F-18, but earlier he had flown the F-15C. Everything I did was the early 80s. Yeah, those four years is when I, you know, when I went to weapons school in the middle of all that. So I got to see Red Flag as a, a wingman, a new flight lead, mission commander, weapons school grad. I, I experienced it kind of all phase, all phases. Scott was an F-14 Rio in the A-plus and B models, so the ones with the upgraded engines. And he flew in flag in the early 90s both on the red and blue sides before completing a long and distinguished career. Yeah, so I retired from the Navy uh, May of last of 19, actually, after 30 years. Last but not least, we have Abs, who was a Royal Australian Air Force navigator. So we had the F-111C, which was, um, was custom-built for the RAF a very experienced operator, Abs flew in the flag as late as 06 uh, with the Australian F-111s. My first area of interest concerned the workup these guys did prior to participating in Red Flag. Uh, the best bit was going up to Scotland and spending 12 trips working down to 100 foot and working up to uh, four fighter for mill and uh, drop in uh, concrete bomb, big concrete bombs and stuff. You, typically, the squadrons would do a workup prior to that. So that when we got to Red Flag, it was all about package integration and mechanics of actually executing um, with the aircraft were, were razor sharp at that point. Generally, as a new squadron, we qualified to drop. It's a bit like you and your air-to-air -air on the flag. Actually, you'd, you'd, once a year you qualify and do the stats and get everyone object. Um, so for the nuclear role, it was Singleton, go and drop a time bomb at night, and that was it. Whereas the attack side of our flying, which was all the stuff in a war scenario, um, we had to do was... Uh, a lot harder you know you didn't do four ship nukes for example did you whereas we did four ship 
um, conventional flights, and they were a lot harder. I mean, I ran a twelve shit once, and that you know that used every ounce <laughs> of brain and skill yeah. to get twelve yeah. Jaguars. I was going to um, say, and, like, and that, it literally must have been like herding cats. Yeah, and, and obviously you did a workup. So bef- the months before that, we're at uh, so we'd go to Lucas for a week or so doing hundred foot flying in Scotland. Scotland was harder flying than Red Flag because the ground was more undulating. Red Flag being basically Arizona desert wasn't all dead flat, but there weren't many waddies to go down and certainly no granite hills that came up like this rather than up like this sort of thing. Yeah. So the Scottish flying, particularly getting down to 100 foot from 250 foot, I was pretty comfortable at 250, even in Germany where it's flat. You know, by that stage, I was very comfortable at 250 feet. But we we went down in Scotland in stages down to 100 foot. And it was it was difficult to fly at a constant 100, uh, at a constant, that's not the right word, con- continual 100 foot in uh, Scotland because you did have to look out the front. So looking out the back, doing your tactics um, and... Single ship stuff, doing a lot of low-level awareness training. Well, actually, the navigation was harder, but we relied more on the INS and we didn't have bloody fancy GPS. So Scotland was harder than red flag flying, but uh, having got pretty comfortable in Scotland and having, you know, four... Yeah, my last one was a four ship in Scotland with four F-15 bounces. And the day before that, I did a six ship at 100 foot with two F-15s and two Phantoms and then dropped a thousand pounder. They made a big thing is 100 foot's the absolute lowest. If you're happy at 200 feet, then you fly 200 feet. If you're happy at 150. So because you end up like this, you know, you've got to to do lookout. And if you can't look out at 100 feet, it's pointless you being there, isn't it? Sadly, not everyone on the squadron was able to get out to red flag. It was a highly fought after, and luckily some of the people that didn't um, didn't get picked up for the exercise sort of had to sit around and play a lot of uckers. Uckers being the adult version of Ludo, a common crew room game. On arrival at red flag, everyone was given the chance to fly around the area and spy out the local landmarks. You did a fam sortie. And I remember having a massive argument over that and being sent home to the hotel. <laughs> uh, yeah, the well, my logbook says I did one red flag area for mill of one hour and ten minutes. And all the that's other when you flew into Area 51, presumably. <laughs> that's when you, we got the briefing on that. I probably got a whole day briefing on. Do yeah, you need to tell me just a little box. bit what that was like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, well, actually, mate, I'm an alien turned into a human. I flew well, out of there. <laughs> I've, always, I've always thought that, but I've never wanted to say it out loud. You've got this sector recce day. So go out into the area, and, and there's all these mountain ranges that you cross, and they'll be like court, courtsides or Hawthorne. And the idea was you flew around, so when you heard an AWAC going, hey, Red Air 15 is at Hawthorne, you knew where Hawthorne was. But oh no, not you know, rather than get, rather than go around in pairs at two fifty feet. This was full on eight ship OLF operational low flying. 
with weaponry <laughs> and then recover back to uh, Nellis. One bloke's leading it. One bloke learns the recovery. Everyone else is just hanging in there. And I told him this and he said, if you don't like my plan, go home. So I went home. <laughs> <laughs> As Nige has alluded to, slap bang in the middle of the ranges was the box, Area 51, an absolute no-go spot. But my memory of the box was um, one day we had planned we were going to ingress really low, you know, be below the radars and try to sneak in and, and shoot some, some bad guys. And we got down low and to the point where we could hear the strike package. As we got lower, we could hear kind of a little bit of static and got down as low as we could and couldn't hear a thing. So we're thinking, okay, we're in the right spot. Heading along the eastern um, edge of the box and hearing some a little bit of communications above, but not all of it. Then all of a sudden there's a voice that's as clear as day. It's like the voice of God, the aircraft's walking, one, two, three, four. You are approaching highly sensitive airspace, whatever it was they said. You know, we were never crossed the line, but they were very um, leery of what we were trying to do. You're a bit too close for comfort. We had NAVWEST 1 then, and that's, and you'll know this because I've heard you mention it, suffered from Shula Loop. If you updated it at 20 minutes, you could guarantee that 20 minutes later you'd be lost again. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it's weird because on the recce day, we flew past it. And, of course, you look at your moving map and you look left and you can see these massive orange bollards like road cones and you cannot fly past those. And that, and that happened. People led whole formations straight through it. I mean, if you flew into the box, you went home. Priority one was don't go in the box. Priority two was don't hit the ground. The absolute biggest threat was the box, Area 51, just to the south. That was, that's why it was the big U. You had that little secret area in the middle there where all kinds of stuff kind of flew around at times. Um, and day one, when you got your briefing, they looked at you and said, if you fly in the box, you will be escorted home. You will have a very secret classified briefing and you will be given a bus ticket back to your home base. <laughs> That's what Dickie Jones did. You need to talk to him. He went into Tonopah. So just as they were wheeling out the stealth jets, he got bagged up and put in a cell and everything he did. Before the start of the exercise, there was a mass briefing where the commander laid out the missions for the participants. I got thrown in the deep end. I got 48 hours notice of picking up a mission commander. Um, I got a tap on the shoulder by the FCI and said, this will be this will be great for your, uh, your development. And at the same time, my stomach dropped out at the bottom of the flying suit, I think. Yeah, you just flew every day. So you had two teams. One would do a morning, one would do an afternoon. Typically, we get the frag the night before. And a red flag day would have two launches. They'd have a morning launch and an afternoon launch. So you'd get your frag the night before, maybe the afternoon launch and get the frag that morning so that the, the air to ground commander and the air to air commander could get together and figure out what you're doing. But there were times the strike package could be 50 airplanes. This is a big picture. The bad guys are coming this way. You guys have got to go and do some of this shit here. You will have this sort of support and uh, you'll get your slot times, but basically it starts at midday sort of thing. And then you go and spend the whole morning getting your shit together. The main flow of Red Flag, it's like a giant upside down U out of Nellis. So the Red Force would take off and go west. The Blue Force would take off and go east. So you picture that big 
giant U over the top. And um, out on the east, you you do your tanking, you do your you know massing of the forces, and invariably you made you press west towards the target ranges through Student Gap. And it was called that because it was a big line of mountains out there with a big gap in the middle of it. And they said, any stupid student can find that gap. So <laughs> the experience of being able to pull 300 aviators in over 100 aircraft together to do what was essentially a 10 minute TOT window was definitely a highlight of you know, my career. Briefed and prepped, it was time to walk out into the hot desert sun and start the jets for the big push. Getting airborne was the hardest because it was a bit like flying with New York air traffickers (laughs) 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 who didn't take kindly to all these foreigners coming in. So if your engine wouldn't bloody start and you had a tech delay, you probably dropped out of the whole package. It's a huge airbase. So you're taxied from these revetments out in the middle of nowhere. Well, they're in the middle of the desert for a start, but they had a, a bit of asphalt going to a runway that was miles away. So you died just trying to get your foreship, well, getting the engine started and getting your foreship or your each ship together was the hardest bit. Now you just pressed on time and you dropped down to low level and yeah, you'd have a, I mean, you know, 60, 70 aircraft package, probably, I don't know, massive. They had one dry lake bed out there, and actually A-10s operated out of there on the dry lake bed at times. They used oh, really? Uh, yeah, they made it like a Ford operating location. At the push point, you'd, you'd hear, you know, all the all the calls from the on the um, OCA channel as uh, as they go out and mix it, and then you just hope that they wipe them clean, and you can roll through relatively unopposed at that point. One push, I wanted to I wanted to kill the EF-111 guys. We're out there in the tanker, and he he turned on his stuff a little too early, and suddenly we were blind. We're looking; everybody's looking at our radar. I mean, here you are at that time, you know, the most sophisticated air-to-air radar in the world. I say our big ABG sixty-three, and we're all talking to each other, going, well, "What do you got? Nothing." And <laughs> we came back and we landed, and right away we got the Raytheon techs out there, and uh, we opened up the nose of the airplane, and every one of the boxes on the radar was latched. Those guys came <laughs> under our formation about 500 feet below us and turned their stuff on too early. It was not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Once the fight was on, it was time to see if your training and tactics would prove successful. A little bit unfair. They would tie one hand behind your back and then say, okay, let's go fight. Like they wouldn't let us use the Phoenix, um, which is to be fair, that's not really indicative of any threat that they need to go up against. But, uh, but yeah, they tie our hands and, You'd be given a time on target. You'd be given a time yep. to cross the flight and the fever and all that. And you were told there would be air support. Flot, forward line of own troops, fever, forward edge of the battle area. One of the things that the Americans couldn't quite wrap their head around is that we would hand fly down to 150 feet within the range over land and do that at up to Mark 1.6. Everyone was colour-coded because you didn't know who was number one and who was number four and who was number six. If blue said blue six, that meant that there was one in the second bloke back on the left-hand side's left corner. 
if somebody said black duck, that meant that black, you've got a fucking fighter coming up your ass from behind and you need to get down as low in the weeds as you can. And if it was red knicker, that meant that red threw a thousand pounder off at the fighters. You must remember Oh, I'd that forgot tactic. about knickers. Yes, I do recall yeah. that tactic of yours. I thought it was always a bit cowardly. Yeah, you well. Should, you should have that. died like men. <laughs> You can maneuver pretty freely. I mean, they had the blocks set where you knew where people were supposed to be, but you saw a guy that was doing something, hey, roll on in. It was, uh, once you got on the range, it was pretty, you know, go for it. <laughs> we go to the merge, and they figured they're in their 15s, they're just going to overpower us and go high. And um, we did the same thing, and they did not expect this. So I remember them saying, on their tactical frequency, oh my God, they're going vertical. <laughs> so we end up in that <laughs> vertical egg fight. And the... We'd have the Navy guys coming at us, Marines, other Air Force units, or, or just whoever happened to be out there. I mean, you flew your airplane to, you know, what it was. What was your success uh, rate against uh, Red Air? Because, I mean, obviously they're, oh, 100%. they're playing. They're <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Yeah, pretty good and it was interesting because they convinced us one day to run in this package use the blue air ahead of us and the, you know you got wild weasels and all, all i mean massive package probably eight thousand feet above the ground and we were running in in this package and the first sign of trouble all these tornadoes just went <laughs> <laughs> down then, to the deck whole formations got down on the deck boys. We kind of could hide down below, you know, the F-16s that were tooling along at 1,500 feet or whatever. You know, they were the, the easier targets, I suppose, above us. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll start off in the high 20s on our point, head south from there. And the A-10 guys look at each other like, I don't know if I can get up to 27,000 feet. You know, I've, I've never been that high. I think my nose bleeds <laughs> above 10. So. <laughs> As soon as we got to the edge of the area, we were at 100 foot. The drive, it's just, he's got a hell of a job just keeping the thing going in the right direction and not tangling wings with anyone or, you know, hitting the, hitting the deck. Trying to recollect what happened. And I mean, this guy just spread himself along the side of a ridge line. And if, I mean, the giant knock it off comes and you're looking, I look over the side and I go, well, that doesn't look real special. No, but, uh, no. Yeah. There's more of this story to come next week with Red Flag Part 3. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.